Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, Dr. Peter Gray is a research psychologist. He focuses on education systems and how children learn naturally. And that's the rub. In this talk, Gray points to the many ways our schools impede natural learning with disturbing consequences. His research and writing shed light on how the creativity and skills we establish in free play influence learning. Peter Gray is the author of Free to Learn, Why Unleashing the Instinct to Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant, and Better Students for Life. He spoke on August 4th at the University of Washington. Thank you to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. My name is uh, Jana Robbins. I am a teacher at King Street Cooperative Preschool, and I've been a a leader in the Lunch and Recess Matter movement um, in Seattle. And so I just want to welcome you all all here. We're super excited to have Peter Gray here to educate us on the value of play in child development. Today we're going to have um, our friend Jesse Hagopian uh, introduce Peter Gray for us. He is also a big part of the Lunch and Recess Matter movement. Um, but also a Seattle public school educator and parent, and also a central branch um, family. And he also wrote um, the book More Than a Score, so if you haven't um, read that book yet, I highly recommend it. It's about the, the opt-out movement regarding testing, um, and also educates a lot around the testing, how it came about, and what, what it's turned into. Um, and he's also the editor of a magazine called Rethinking Schools. So, lots of hats. So here's Jesse. Excellent. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, I'm Jesse Hagopian, and it's a pleasure to be with you today. I thought there would be more kids here. I brought my kids. Um, <laughs> But I guess this is too serious of a topic to have your kids come and play. Uh, um, I just want to say a couple words about uh, how it came to be that uh, we needed to be in the struggle for play here in Seattle um, before I, I introduce our um, guest lecturer this evening. And it was in May of 2014 that I had just dropped or just picked my kid up from uh, the preschool, and we were listening to a program on the radio um, by a a journalist, Ann Dornfeld, and she was running a series called No Time for Play. And in that series, we learned that there were some dozen schools now that had uh, less than 20 minutes of recess time across Seattle, and that it had dramatically increased from, from one school only a few years earlier to now a dozen schools, uh, and it got worse from there. Um, she also highlighted the fact that it wasn't random which schools were eliminating recess, that it was actually primarily the schools uh, that served low-income students and students of color that were eliminating more and more recess. And so... At that point, I hadn't done a lot of the research. I didn't know how fundamental play is to human development, but I I knew something was wrong, and I began to do some of the research and got a resolution passed in our union, the Seattle Education Association, 
um, calling for more recess time and forming a, a committee at the district to investigate why recess is disappearing in our schools. Um, I wrote an op-ed for the Seattle Times. I, I did everything I could think of doing, and then I saw a petition uh, surge online that Jana had, uh, had put forward uh, calling for more recess time. They garnered hundreds and then thousands of, of parent uh, signatures uh, very quickly. And then we heard about uh, parents who were demanding more time for their kids to, to have lunch and eat uh, in the North End. And, and a parent quickly called a meeting together. Um, uh, Deb Escher held the first meeting in, in her living room of uh, the Lunch and Recess Matter group where we found out that this wasn't just isolated pockets. This was schools all across Seattle were denying kids the right to eat and the right to play. And uh, from there, there was a real grassroots uh, mobilization. They, they came together in schools in the North End and South End and, and all in between. Um, we took uh, our kids to the school board meetings and they rallied for lunch and recess. Um, the, the parents did an incredible job researching, uh, and building on the research Anne Dornfeld had done, actually organizing teams to go into the school buildings and observe and, and, and time the amount of time the kids had to eat and play. And we found out that um, in the first eight schools that uh, these parents observed, there was as little as uh, seven minutes of seated lunchtime in one school. Uh, and the average time was only 13 minutes, which was a violation of the district's own policy of having at least 20 minutes of seated lunchtime. Um, and we documented the disappearance of recess. And, you know, parents in the Lunch and Recess Matter group met with the different committees and the school board and really pressed this issue. And they seemed to just be dodging us at every turn, um, telling us, you know, they'll get to it. Just be patient, um, all, all sorts of ways to neglect our kids' basic rights. Uh, and then something really incredible happened, which was the union went and bargained a new contract this year. You guys uh, may have been aware of the strike that happened, right? <laughs> and the union took up some of the most important demands that face families around the city, the demand for less standardized testing in the schools, a demand for race and equity committees at every single school to figure out why our students of color are being suspended at such high rates and being pushed out of school. Uh, and one of the demands they took up was a demand for a minimum of 45 minutes of recess in every school. And uh, we didn't quite win that, right, Moss? He's a little sore that we didn't get all the way there, but... Uh, he's also very proud that he participated in some of the first demonstrations for more recess time, and the district did cave and give a, a minimum of 30 minutes in every elementary school uh, in the Seattle Public Schools, a resounding victory uh, for families here in Seattle. So it's in that context that I want to introduce Peter Gray, a professor uh, at Boston College, author of several books, including 
uh, free to learn, why unleashing the instinct to play will make our children happier. Um, highly recommend everyone get this. Um, the textbook Psychology um, and several other books, and he writes a popular blog on psychology to, today, um, magazine titled Freedom to Learn. He's conducted and published research in comprehensive evolutionary, developmental, and educational psychology, and he is an undergraduate. Uh, he did his undergraduate study at Columbia University uh, and earned his PhD in biological science at Rockefeller University. His current research writing uh, and writing focuses primarily on children's natural way of learning and their lifelong value of play. Um, his own play includes not only his research in writing, but also long-distance bicycling, kayaking, backwoods skiing, and vegetable gardening. And I just want to read uh, one, one pa quick passage from his book before I turn it over, um, from Free to Learn. He said, quote, Nothing that we do, no amount of toys we buy or quality time or special training we give to our children can compensate for the freedom we take away. The things that children learn through their own initiatives and free play cannot be taught in other ways. We are pushing the limits of children's adaptability. We have to push children into, uh, we have pushed children into an abnormal environment where they are expected to spend ever greater portions of their day under adult directions, sitting at desks, listening to and reading about things that don't interest them. And answering questions that are not their own and are not to them real questions. We leave them ever less time and freedom to play, explore, and pursue their own interests. And so I would say that for all those kids whose parents ask them what their favorite subject is, and they say recess, uh, Dr. Peter Gray has your back. <laughs> so welcome, thanks so much for coming. Thank you. What a great introduction. And thank you all for coming. Um, it's a delight for me to be here. I'm uh, an evolutionary psychologist, which means that I'm interested in human nature. I'm interested in how that nature came about by natural selection. I'm interested especially in the nature of human children. And most especially, I'm interested in those aspects of children's nature which came about by natural selection to serve the function of their education. Because we've been the educable animal. We've been the cultural animal. We've been the animal that survives by the transmission of culture from one generation to the next ever since we've been human beings, maybe even before we were homo sapiens long before there was anything like schools, long before there was the notion that education is adults' responsibility, it was always children's responsibility. And over the course of human history, those children that were born with the instincts that led them to acquire what they need to know in the world around them were, of course, the ones who survived and thrived and reproduced. This is how natural selection works. 
When we look at the characteristics of children, what do we think of? Curiosity. Curiosity. Children, from the, almost from the moment they're born, they're exploring their world. They want to figure out everything around them. You can't stop them from doing it unless you, unless you put them in a closet. You can't prevent them from learning. They're always, they want to, as soon as they can manipulate things, they're manipulating everything they can get their hands on. They're dropping it to see what happens. They're squeezing it. They're pushing it. They're exploring the, that's curiosity. And curiosity doesn't end um, when children reach five or six years old unless we kill it. The other characteristic, another characteristic that we think of as, as a, Part of the, almost the definition of children is playfulness. It's not that we adults aren't playful too, but children are especially playful, just like they're especially curious. Play is how, how is nature's way for children to practice all the kinds of skills that they need to develop, and that's what I'm going to primarily be talking about today. But children also come into the world naturally social. They want to know what other people know. They want to understand the people around them. They want to get into other people's minds and figure that out. That's part of education. And children come into the world willful. They want to do what they want to do, (laughs) not what we want them to do. And I would argue that's also an educative instinct, because ultimately they have to take control of their life. They know that in their bones. They have to, t- and they start that at age two, much to our consternation. They want to take control of their life, and we've got to figure out how to let them take control of their life, because that ultimately is what growing up is all about. So the title of my um, talk today is "What Exactly Is Play." And why is it so valuable for children's healthy intellectual, social, and emotional development? So I'm going to concentrate on play. I think you all have a copy of the handout. Your copy is yellow. Uh, And if you take a look at the handout, it shows kind of the outline of what I'm going to be talking about. So it's divided into three major sections, but the bulk of the talk is Roman numeral two. What exactly is play and why is it such a powerful vehicle for learning? But I'm going to introduce the talk with some sad news. This, is a, this first part is not a happy talk. The decline of play and the rise of mental disorders. Um, this is why play, we, I think we really are at a tragic point in history. And um, we are really, I think it's really fair to say that our society is psychologically abusing children right now because of our, the way we restrict uh, their freedom. So I'm going to talk about that and the consequences of that restriction. Then I'm going to talk about what exactly is play, and I'm going to give a definition of play, a five-part definition of play, and with each aspect of that definition, I'm going to explain how this aspect of play contributes to play's enormous power for education and development. And then finally, in what time remains at the end, I'll raise some questions, some ideas about what can we do to restore play in our society today. So the decline of play and the rise of mental disorders, over the last 60 years, there has been a continuous, gradual, but ultimately huge decline in children's freedom, huge decline in children's freedom. 
there's no comparison between the amount of freedom that I had as a kid in the 1950s, 60 years ago, and the amount of freedom kids have today. By the time I was five, I could go anywhere in town on my own, by bicycle or walking. There are 10-year-olds who can't do that today. There are 12-year-olds who can't do that today. We've infantilized children. It's not just my memories. We know there, there are historical studies. There are other social science studies. Howard Chudikoff, who wrote a book called Children in Play, uh, an American History, refers to the first half of the 20th century as the, as the golden age of children's play. By the beginning of the 20th century, the need for child labor had declined enough that children were beginning to have free time and, the, and, the, and they were beginning to be able to play as they are really biologically designed to do rather than work all the time in sweatshops or on farms. So, but, and, and school and adults had not yet taken over that free time. But beginning around 1955, according to Chudikoff, adults gradually began to take over that free time. And there's a variety of ways in which that occurred. Um, there are various kinds of social science studies. So, for example, one sort of study is to um, ask parents, how many hours a week does your child play outdoors? Most of these studies are about outdoor play. And the parent answers, and then asks the parent, when you were the same age as your child, in your memory, how many hours a week did you play outdoors? And it's usually about two or three times as much for the parents talking about. And that's just one generation. And we're talking about two, possibly three generations, depending on how you count. And this has been going on all along. When I was in school, um, in elementary school in the 1950s, talk about recess. We had six-hour school days, as most schools have today. Two of those hours were outdoors playing. We had half an hour recess in the morning, half an hour recess in the afternoon. We had a full hour at lunch. We probably spent seven minutes eating lunch, but that was so that we could spend 53 minutes <laughs> playing. And we could go off campus. We didn't have to stay there. We didn't have, even in recess, at, at least one of the schools I remember, fifth and sixth grade, we could go off campus. We could go anywhere during recess. We were trusted to come back. When the bell rang, we'd come back. We played with knives. <laughs> we, we <laughs> every, every boy had a knife. <laughs> you know, we played with knives. We wrestled in the snow. We Teachers weren't watching us, at least not that I know of. If they were watching us, they certainly didn't intervene. <laughs> kids were trusted to play. I mean, kids, you know, because we grew up playing, you know, we grew up knowing how to take responsibility for ourselves. There's just no comparison. I once was talking to somebody, and I said to a, this was to a young mother, I said, you know, um, Peanuts, the comic strip, how those kids are out there just playing and there's no adult around. You know, that's actually how it was. And she said, no. <laughs> she said, you know, in comics, the animals talk. I thought this was just like that. You know, this was just made up. <laughs> you know, the people don't understand how far we've gone. I once made the statement at an anthropology convention in front of people. I was a little nervous about making this because these are people who could call me out on this if I'm wrong. 
I said that I believe that our children today are less free than children have ever been in the history of humanity, with the exception of times of high child labor and slavery. Nobody, nobody, and these were anthropologists who studied children all over the world. These are some people who know about. I've also looked into hunter-gatherer existence. I've looked, I've talked with a lot of people interested in culture. Children everywhere throughout history, except at times of intense child labor and slavery, have been more free than our children to play and explore on their own and to pursue their own interests. So there are a lot of reasons for the decline. I'm not going to try to go into them. That could be a talk in itself. But, you know, we could summarize them. I think there's sort of three categories of reasons. One is the rise of fears. Uh, the media-driven rise of fears. We're all so afraid of what might happen to our children. In fact, these kinds of crimes that we're afraid of are very rare, uh, and they're certainly no more common than they were back in the 1950s. But for a variety of reasons, we have these fears, and once we get these fears in our head, it's very hard to get them out. And so quite understandably, when we're constantly hearing these warnings about how dangerous it is out there and what might happen to our child if, God forbid, we allow our child out of our sight for a minute or two, um, it's very, very hard to set that image aside and allow your child to go out and play. So that's one thing. Another thing is the increased weight of school. Increased weight of school. The school, I said that, you know, we've, when I was a kid in elementary school, we had two hours outdoors. We were never in our, we were never indoors more than an hour at a time. We had a, you know, we had an hour indoors, a half hour recess, an hour, an hour, you know. We were never, nobody expected that kids could sit in their seats more than about an hour at a time at least not in the elementary schools that I was in. Now, of course, we drug kids if they can't sit in their seats that long. So uh, if they can't sit in their seats longer than that. The school year then was five weeks shorter. Not everybody realizes that. The school year was five weeks shorter. We had a full extra month in the summer compared to what kids in schools today have, and we had another week uh, during the year off. Um, we never had homework in elementary school. Maybe once in a while the teacher would give us a poem to write, ask us to write a poem or a little story at home or something. Never took home worksheets, never carried home books. That was simply not something that happened in elementary school. It began to happen a little bit in middle school uh, and to some degree in high school, but not to the degree of today. Even during the school year, my friends and I spent far more time outdoors playing than we spent in school. And there's no question but why, at least in my mind, that the education we got from that sort of play was far more important than the education that we got in school. Because the lessons that you learn in self-directed play are lessons that stick with you. And they're lessons, of, they're lessons that have to do with things that are really ultimately important in life. And I'm going to talk something about what those lessons are as we go along. Now, over this, uh, well, and then there's, and then the other, a third reason, a third reason for the decline, really, that relates to the increased weight of school is the rise of what I often refer to as a schoolish approach to child raising. This is the idea that children develop better when they are guided and supervised by adults than when they are just playing on their own. 
this is an idea that sort of comes, it's sort of like the idea of teaching leaving the school wall and infecting all the rest of society. So instead of just sending the kids out to play, pick up baseball or whatever they play, we send them into adult-directed sports or karate classes or this or that. All of life becomes school in a sense. It's all about training. Moreover, we've kind of redefined childhood from being a time of fun um, to a time of resume building. Increasingly, parents think that the goal, their goal as parents, is to get that kid into the most elite college they can get the kid into. And, and play doesn't go on a resume. You can't put that play on a resume. But if you're playing a sport, and if you make it onto the high school team, perhaps, maybe that'll go on a resume. But that'll help you get into Stanford or wherever your goal is that you want to get your kid into. We've become obsessed with the idea of getting our kids into some kind of a top college, despite the fact that there's zero evidence that going to a top college makes you happier in life. <laughs> Maybe it makes you earn a little bit more. Maybe. And even that's questionable. I've written uh, uh, articles questioning that. And there is actually some data showing that if you match for other characteristics, socioeconomic background, and so on and so forth, and you match for those characteristics, the kid who goes to the local state college does just as well economically even in life as the kid who goes to Stanford. So in fact, even that idea of income, I mean, we could debate that all day, but there's a, it depends on how you look at the statistics. So those are some of the things that have happened that have led to the decline of children's freedom. Now, over this same 60-year period that children's freedom has gradually been declining, all sorts of mental disorders have been increasing. It's not just that we are diagnosing disorders that we didn't know about before, or we're seeing disorders that we didn't look for before or know how to measure. Even by standardized clinical assessment questionnaires that have been kept constant over the years and given to normative groups of young people, the degree of psychological depression, the degree of anxiety disorders, as well as other disorders, has increased enormously. So for, just to give you an example, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory has a scale that assesses depression, and there's a version of this for, for adolescents. And it's been given in the same form since about 1938. Ever since about 1960, it was pretty stable up until between, between 1930 and about 1960. Ever since about 1960, there's been a gradual but overall dramatic increase in depression among young people as measured that way. Such that if you took what today would be regarded as the cutoff point on that scale for suspected diagnosis of major depression and use that as the index of major depression, Something like seven to ten times as many kids today, the rate of de major depression, I'm sorry, seven to eight times the rate of major depression today compared to the 1950s. And this has been a gradual change. It's not that there has just been a sudden recent change. There's been a gradual change over the years. Similarly, there's a scale called Taylor's Manifest Anxiety Scale that has been used since the 1950s 
to assess anxiety levels. And again, if you look at what would be the cutoff for clinically significant general anxiety disorder, it's something like five or six times the rate that it was in the 1950s. And again, this has been a continuous increase. If you don't like questionnaire data, there's suicide data. The suicide rate for children under age 15 is now uh, four times what it was in the 1950s. The suicide rate for young people between age 15 and 24 is about twice what it was in the 1950s. The suicide rate for people from age 25 to 40 is just slightly higher than it was then. The suicide rate for people age 40 has gone down. The suicide rate for people my age in their 70s has dropped precipitously. We have become a better world for old people. We've apparently become a much worse world for children. Shame on us. So the, um, another, what I think is one of the most telling findings from questionnaire data is this, that we have, um, there's, a, there's a, an assessment questionnaire called Rotter's Internal External Locus of Control Scale. What this assesses is the degree to which you feel that you are in control of your own life versus the degree to which you feel that you're kind of a victim of circumstance and fate and powerful others. It turns out that a very good predictor of psychological health in other respects is to have this internal sense of control. People who don't have this internal sense of control are much more likely to become depressed or anxious at some point in their life. They're also more likely to become unhealthy in other ways because they don't necessarily take such good care of their health. They're less likely to get involved in civic issues and so on. So it's a good thing to have an internal sense of control. It's a shame, therefore, that over this period, ever since that test was developed, around 1960, there's been a continuous decline in the degree to which young people, both teenagers and young adults, typically college-age students, uh, have an internal sense of control. So I think there's a kind of a causal chain here. How do children develop an internal sense of control? They develop by experiencing control, having control, being in situations where they have to take control of their life because there's no adult around doing it for them. If we are constantly controlling children, how on earth are they ever going to develop a sense of internal sense of control? So I think that finding is, in my mind, kind of a key finding. The internal sense of control goes down, depression and anxiety go up. All right, more bad news. Uh, There are uh, psychological tests that were developed in the the late 1960s um, assessing empathy and another one assessing uh, narcissism. And ever since those tests have been used, empathy has been going down in young people and narcissism has been going up. And I'm going to argue this, is, this too is exactly what you would expect if children are not playing with other children. School promotes narcissism. <laughs> The, the, the parents tend to promote narcissism because we praise our children. We tell them how wonderful and beautiful they are. Kids don't tell one another that. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And in school, it is kind of set up to be all about you. You're supposed to achieve. You want to be the valedictorian. You want to do better than other people. Collaboration is cheating. <laughs> Helping somebody else could, lower, could raise the curve and lower you. You know, it's all set up for selfishness. And so if you buy into that, you know, it 
It promotes narcissism. Play doesn't work that way. So one more thing, creativity. Uh, this is something that I've learned fairly recently. There's, uh, I didn't know, know about this research, but there's a woman at um, William & Mary who has uh, been analyzing the results of tests of creativity over the decades. Now, it turns out, at first I thought, oh, you know, how can you test creativity? That's crazy. But it turns out there is a set of tests for creative thinking uh, called the Torrance Tests of Creative Thinking, and I looked into the literature, and this woman who does this research kind of convinced me and, but, and told me the literature to look at. This is a pretty valid test. It turns out that those kids, when you give this test to kids, those kids who score high on this test of creativity are far more likely later on in life to actually produce creative achievements. They're more likely to invent something or to start a new company or to write a novel, do the kinds of things that we regard as major creative contributions to our culture than those who score lower. In fact, what these studies show is that this is actually the best predictor that we have of future real-world creativity as scores on these Torrance tests of creativity. Better predictor than IQ, better, way better predictor than grade point average, better predictor than teachers' uh, projections of who's going to be successful in this sense in life, better predictor than peers, peer projections. Best predictor that we have of who's going to... And so it's a shame that over the past 30 years, at every grade level, scores on Torrance's tests have been going down. Going down enough so that the average score on this test today is... Uh, is, is, uh, is lower that, I'm, I'm sorry, that 80% of to people taking the test today are lower than the average person was 30 years ago on this test. And that's kind of true at every, at every grade level. Well, again, no surprise. I mean, you take away creative activities. Play is the most, play by definition is creative. It's always creative. You take that away and you spend your time doing stuff that you're being told to do, that's purely non-creative, aimed at doing well on tests, and what do you expect? Of course, creativity is going to be going down. All right, so this is all correlational evidence. Now, I think I've presented this in a way that you can see where there might be cause and effect, that we would somebody who knows about play, these are exactly the changes you would predict. These are the changes you would predict. Now, there's actually, I'll talk about it at the end of the talk, there's actually animal experiments where you can't do an experiment depriving play, children of play where you assign one group to the rich play group and the other the play deprivation group, and then you compare them in a systematic way. But you can do this with animals. You used to be able to do it with monkeys. Now it's regarded as cruel to do it with monkeys. Interesting, cruel to de deprive monkeys of play, but we do that with our own children all the time. So, but you used to be able to do it with monkeys, and the result was, and there's ways of doing this, I won't go into detail about it, but the result was that those monkeys that were deprived of play but had other kinds of social experiences, had the same access to their moms and so on and so forth, were, um, were emotionally and socially crippled when they grew up. They, they react, overreacted with fear, overreacted with aggression. They didn't know how to adapt to novel environments just because they were deprived of play. Nowadays, this kind of work is done with rats. It's okay to do whatever you want with rats. 
but you but uh, so but with similar kinds of similar kinds of results. So let me now go on to the to the meat of the talk. The um, the um, what exactly is play? So play is a concept that um, fills our minds with contradictions when we think about it. Uh, play is serious and um, yet not serious. It's trivial and yet it's profound. It is imaginative and spontaneous, yet it is always bound by rules, and it's how children learn to follow rules. Play is not real. It takes place in an imaginary fantasy world, typically, and yet it is about the real world, and it is how children learn to cope with the real world. Play is childish, and yet it underlies what most of us would agree are the major accomplishments of adults. From a biological perspective, play is nature's way of ensuring that young mammals, and particularly young human beings, practice the kinds of skills that they need to practice to grow up and live a successful life. From a religious perspective, we might say that play is God's gift that makes life on earth worthwhile. And that's what we are depriving our children of when we deprive them of play. Children everywhere, when they're free to do so, play in certain universal ways. In every culture where children are free to play, they play in these kinds of ways. They play at physical locomotor play. This is the kind of play we share with other animals. Chasing one another around, wrestling, climbing trees, doing all these things that... um, that uh, uh, exercise their bodies. Children are not designed to run laps or lift weights. They're designed to chase one another around until their sides are splitting. And they're designed to climb trees, and they're designed, and they play in risky ways, as do other mammals. Why on earth do they do that? I'll tell you, they're doing that because that's how they develop courage. Courage is an important ability, a thing to develop. Every one of us at some points in our life are going to be faced with real emergencies, with real dangers. And if we can't keep our heads and if we can't control our minds and bodies in the face of fear, something terrible could happen. So children, they're not doing it deliberately. They don't know why they're doing it. They're just doing it because they love to do these frightening things. Climbing trees too high, swinging way up in the swing, skateboarding down banisters, diving off of cliffs. Other animals do these same kinds of things. What are they doing? They're testing their ability to feel fear and how great they feel when they survive it. How are they, <laughs> you know? And the truth is, they have a better sense. They certainly have a better sense than we do, looking at them, of what they can actually do and not do. Rarely do they really, really hurt themselves. And that's true for other animals, too, although it does sometimes happen. But apparently, it, this behavior would have been selected out by natural selection were it not the case that the benefit outweighs the risk. And I would say that one of the risks is that if we deprive our children of this kind of play, they grow up without that kind of courage and they are subject to panic attacks. They're subject to their anxiety. They're subject to fears because they don't have the confidence that is developed by that kind of play. So that's, that's physical play, including risky physical play. Children, the other forms of play that I've listed here are all uniquely human, linguistic play. We're the animal that talks. And children learn 
to speak in play. Nobody teaches them to speak. They learn it in play. Cooing and babbling is always playful. First words are always playful. They're never asking for anything with first words. They're never getting it because they're rewarded. Nobody ever teaches. They're, they're just playing with words. They're trying them out. And as they get older, they're playing with, they become little poets, if you listen to them. They're playing with alliteration and rhyme and alternative constructions. Listen to, so there are studies of crib talk where young children are talking to themselves and recording it. And it's, and you can see how they're, they're almost systematically varying what they're saying to try out different kinds of constructions. So there's language play. There is constructive play. We're the animal with opposable thumbs. We're the animal that survives by building things. Children in all parts of the world play at building things, whether it's sandcastles or huts in trees or dugout canoes, depending upon the culture. Children play at building things, and they become good at using their opposable thumbs, and they become good at imagining something that they're going to build and then following through and building it. There is imaginative fantasy play. We are the animal that can imagine. In fact, all of our higher order thought involves imagination. Whenever we're thinking of something, we're the animal that can think of something that isn't there. That means imagination, and that's what children are practicing all the time in play, is the ability to think of things that aren't there and then to follow through in some logical way about them. That's what scientists do, but that's also what children do in play. And then there are games with formal rules, things like uh, Candyland or chess or Foursquare or baseball. And all uh, cultures have games with formal rules. And it's interesting that in, you know, in human cultures, there's always certain rules that everybody has to follow, and we kind of have to learn to follow rules. And I think children are learning to follow explicit rules in games of that sort. And of course, there, there is social play, but social play overlaps with all of these things. Whenever you're playing with more than one, ever, whenever there's more than one kid playing together, it's social play, and they're learning all the social skills of being able to get along with one another and being able to compromise and negotiate. So none of this, though, these are, these are ways that children play and some of the things that children learn in play, but that still doesn't define play. So let me now get into the definition of play. Play is not simply defined uh, in terms of one single characteristic. Rather, play seems to be the, the, the category of behavior that researchers call play and that, that kindergarten kids call play, too. There's actually been studies of this. Is a category of behavior that has the five characteristics that I'm going to list here and, and elaborate upon. And the to the degree that an activity has all of these five characteristics, to that degree, we would say it is highly playful. Play isn't necessarily all or none. Something can be 100% play or something can be 50% play. Not that we have a, a, a way of measuring it like that, but the idea that an activity can be more or less playful to the degree that it has these characteristics. So the first characteristic is that play is self-chosen and self-directed. Play is always voluntary. That's the primary characteristic of play. It's voluntary. It's what you want to do as opposed to what you have to do. 
It's always what you want to do. It's always an expression of freedom. It's always what you do when you are free to do whatever you want to do. Play is in that category. Play is not always a company. You can't necessarily identify it by whether smiling and laughing is occurring. People smile and laugh in all kinds of contexts. And people can have a very serious face in play. But play is always accompanied by the feeling within the player of, yes, this is what I want to be doing right now. So not only is play voluntary, self-chosen, but it's also directed by the players. If you have an authority figure, if you have an adult there telling the kids how to do it, if you have a coach there, then it's not play. The coach may be playing, but the kids now are pawns in the coach's play. The kids are not directing it. The kids are not making the, making the, the decisions of what to do. They're being told what position to play. They're being told when to come in, when to go out. And so they're not making up the rules. The, if, there, if there's any changes in the rules, it's the coach and the umpire and the adults involved who are changing it. So players not only decide to play, but they decide what and how to play. Now, most play throughout the world is social play, except in our culture where our children are so often isolated in homes. But children are driven to play with other children. So most play is social. So that means, since players have to make the rules, that means they've got to make the rules together. They've got to figure out together. So I want to play this, but, and I want to play with you. There's nothing more that I want, nothing in life that I want more than to play with you. But I want to play this. And you say, heck no, I don't want to play that. <laughs> I want to play something else. And if I stick to my guns, I say, no, no, I'm only playing this, you will remember that your mom is calling you and you'll go and leave me alone. That's the natural consequence of my not being willing to listen to you. So next time I come around and I say, I'm going to play this, and you say, no, I want to play this, I will say, well, let's think about it. You know, so we have a discussion about it. We figure out, maybe, maybe you don't want to play what I want to play, I don't want to play what you want to play, but maybe there's some third thing that we would both like to play, and we figure that out. And then as we're playing, maybe I'm kind of a bully and I really want to have my way in exactly how we're playing. But the greatest freedom in play is freedom to quit. It's freedom to quit that makes play the most democratic of all activities. I have to listen to you. I have to take into account what you're saying. Not because of any great moral virtue in my part, but simply because I want to play with you And you're not going to play with me if I don't listen to you. So I have to learn to pay attention to you. I have to learn to be attuned to what you're saying. I have to even learn to pay attention to your nonverbal cues as to whether you are having fun or not. This, I would contend, is the most important human skill of all, is the ability to pay attention to another person and know whether they are happy or not happy, know whether you are making them happy, whether you're offending them or not. If you don't have that skill, you can't have a good marriage. You can't have real friends. You can't have good work partners. We are a social animal. We cannot survive alone. We cannot live psychologically. We cannot live physically alone. We absolutely depend upon being able to get into the heads of other people so that we can really meaningfully cooperate with it. And that is what children are practicing all the time 
in social play. We completely destroy that when we adults are there solving all the problems and stepping in and interfering and settling every dispute rather than allowing them to settle it in their own natural ways, which often includes just plain quitting because that is the ultimate lesson to the bully is that nobody's going to play with them if they're going to behave that way. And even the bully, in the end, really wants to play with people. And most bulls, some people, it takes longer for them to come around, but most of them will eventually come around if they have enough opportunity. So think of the difference between um, an old-fashioned pickup game of baseball, the way we played baseball all the time in the 1950s, and the way kids mostly play baseball today, which is an adult-led, little league uh, kind of activity. What are you learning in the two cases? When it's the pickup game, you have to go, you're going to this odd-shaped lot, you have to make up the ground rules, you have to negotiate about it, you have to, you've got a motley group of kids of various ages and strengths and abilities, you've got to make up sides in some way. You've got to figure out how to keep everybody happy, including the people on the other team, <laughs> because if they quit, there's no game. It means that you, it's a whole different thing. It's, an entire, it's all about cooperation. It's all about negotiation and cooperation. So let's say I'm a big strapping 15-year-old pitcher and I, and I uh, pitch hard to this 10-year-old skinny kid here. Even my own teammates will ridicule me for that. <laughs> you know. Whereas... If I didn't do that when I was playing Little League, the coach would ball me out, right? If I gave, I tossed it nice and gently so the kid on the other team could hit, get a chance to hit the ball. The goal is to have fun when it's play. The goal is to please other people. You are learning real life lessons when you're playing that way. In the, in the Little League game, you're learning how to slide into second base, and you're learning how to bunt, and you're learning some interesting things about baseball but you are not learning about negotiation, about creating rules, about empathy, about overcoming narcissism, all of these things that are, that are what play is designed by natural selection to teach us. Okay, the second characteristic of play, play is motivated by means more than ends. In play, we value our actions more than the results of our actions. So to the degree that we engage in an activity in order to get some goal, some trophy, some reward, some praise, to the degree that we're doing it for that kind of purpose, it's not play. To the degree that we're doing it for its own sake, it's play. When, we're, when we are not playing, when we're engaged in goal-directed activity, we usually want to take the shortest, easiest route to get the goal because it's the goal that we want. It's that prize that we want. And so whatever is the least we have to do to get it. So if we're a student studying for a test and we feel we need an A, or I'll say anything less than an A is a failure, we do the very least we have to do to get the A. Why do more? That would be just a waste of time. And that... You know, that's the typical view of every, almost every student. That's what we train students to do. They would be inefficient if they were to do more than they had to do to get the A. On the other hand, the kid who's in that same class who doesn't give a damn about the A, but who is there playfully because they're just really interested, that person is not being bound. They're not doing it for the goal. They're doing it for the activity itself and the meaningfulness of the activity and whatever they might actually get out of it. 
So there's the difference between play and goal-directed activity is if it's goal-directed, you do the least you have to do to get the goal. If it's play, you're focused on the means. You immerse yourself in it. You engage yourself with it. <clears throat> Another way of saying all this is to say that play is intrinsically motivated, whereas uh, non-play is activity, goal-directed activities are extrinsically motivated, motivated toward extrinsic rewards as opposed to motivated by the activity itself. Now, play does often have goals, but the goals are an intrinsic part of the activity itself. They're not valued independently of the activity. So kids making a sandcastle have the goal of building a beautiful sandcastle, but it's the building of the sandcastle that matters to them, not the having of the sandcastle. The sandcastle is going to wash into the sea when the tide comes up anyway. They're putting all this effort into it, all this work into it, if you want to call it work, because they are enjoying the activity and they don't care that it gets washed into the sea in the end. If you are playing baseball, you, are, you, you have the goal of scoring and winning. That's part of baseball. You know, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to score, you're trying to win. But if scoring and winning has value of its own outside of the game, because you're going to win a trophy in the end, or you're going to get praise in the end, or you're going to get a college scholarship in the end, then to the degree that you're doing it for that purpose, it's no longer play. It's play to the degree that it's the process rather than the end. Now, there's a lot of research showing that play can be undermined by giving rewards. So, you know, the classic study of this sort was done uh, many, many years ago by Lepper and Green. I think they did it at Stanford, actually, uh, where it was done with preschool children and here's what they did. They identified an activity that all the kids in these preschool classes uh, enjoyed, drawing with magic markers, with felt-tip pens. The kids spent, apparently all the kids in these classes spent a certain amount of time playing with magic markers. At least all of them they brought into the experiment did. Then in the experiment, they, they, with one group of the kids, they rewarded them just once for playing with magic markers. The way they set it up was this. We're going to have a visitor to our class, and it'd be really nice if you would draw a picture for the visitor with magic markers, and if you draw a picture, you will get this beautiful gold certificate, good player certificate. The other, and they really wanted that certificate. It's very beautiful. And then the other group was told, there's going to be a visitor to the class, and uh, it'd be really nice if you drew a picture. Don't have to. Nice if you drew a picture, and nothing was said about any kind of reward for doing it. Now, two results of that experiment. The result that was predicted and also found was that those kids who were rewarded just once for drawing a picture subsequently played less with magic markers than they had before. For several, for I don't know how long they followed them, but for however long they followed them, they played significantly less with magic markers than before. Whereas those who were not rewarded but just drew the picture on their own free will for the visitor um, continued to play with magic markers at a high level. Apparently, being rewarded just once had the effect of changing their attitude about magic marker activity. 
from this is something you do for fun to, some, to this is something you do for reward. And if there's no reward, why do it? So you do it for the reward. The reward gets taken away. You don't do it. Think of the, re- think of the significance of that for school. We, we motivate everything with rewards, A's and gold stars and praise and all of that. And what are we doing? We're undermining it as play. We're making it into something that you do for a reward rather than something that you do for its own sake. And then we wonder why kids don't do a lot of reading on their own outside of school. It's because they've taught, been, they've been, they've taught. this is something you do for, when, you're, when you have to do it. <laughs> this is work. This isn't fun. There are so many things that we teach in school that would be fun <laughs> if we let people just play with it instead of thinking that we have to teach it and reward it and get people to do it and motivate them to do it and so on and so forth. We undermine the playful aspect of that activity. The other thing they found out, from, they, they found from this study, and this is, study has been replicated many times uh, with various age groups, different kinds of tasks, adults as well as kids. The other thing they found was that those kids who were drawing the picture for reward actually drew worse pictures <laughs> than the ones that were not drawing it for reward. Keep in mind, they weren't told you had to draw a good picture to get the reward. They were just told you have to draw a picture. (laughs) So they scribbled out a picture, collected their reward. The kids who were just drawing a picture for fun, there's no point in drawing a picture for fun unless you're putting something into it. It's no fun unless you're doing it that way. So when you're doing something for fun, you're putting your emphasis in the means, in the process. You're immersing yourself in it. When you're doing it for a reward, you kind of figure out what's the least I have to do to get the reward, and that's what you do. Third characteristic of play, uh, play is, is guided by mental rules. This sometimes surprises people, but all play has rules. Play is freely chosen activity, but it's not free form activity. It's not random activity. The rules can change and vary as much as the children want them to, but it's always structured. There's no such thing as unstructured play. Play is always structured, and it's structured by rules that the child has in mind. They may be rules that the child entirely made up or the group of children entirely made up, or they may be rules that are partly prescribed by the formal game, such as baseball or chess or whatever it is. But in that case, they're accepting the rules. They're incorporating it. So all play is structured. The play is is bounded by some kind of a framework. And that framework is what we call the rules of play. Even the wildest looking kinds of play has rules. Rough and tumble play. You see two boys chasing one another around, fighting with one another, throwing one another down, and so on. It looks completely wild. But think about the difference between that and a real fight. The difference is that has rules, and the real fight does not. In the play fight, you don't kick, you don't bite, you don't scratch. Both parties know that. You violated an implicit rule if you do that. If you are the stronger of the two, you don't use all your force. You go through the motions of fighting, but you don't really hurt the other person. These are the rules of a play fight. Nobody has to say them. They're implicit. It's all implicit. If you violated that rule, the game, the fun would be over. So play is always an exercise in restraint. And that's one of the important things that children learn in play is how to restrain themselves, how to, how to 
how to keep their behavior within the bounds of the rules. If they violate those bounds, their playmates will, will tell them, will call them out on it. You can't do that. That violates the rule. So that's, that's play fighting. Think of other, you know, in constructive play. The rule is that you are working with a certain medium to produce something that you have in mind. You're producing a sandcastle or a tower of blocks. You're not just randomly piling up sand or randomly. You're producing something structured, and that structure lies in your mind, and then you're carrying it out in your behavior. When little kids are playing fantasy play, they're playing house or they're playing superheroes, the basic rule is you have to stay in character. You have to, if you are the mommy, you have to act the way you and your peers believe mommies are supposed to act. If you're the pet dog, you have to walk around on all fours and you're not allowed to talk. You have to go arf, arf, arf. No matter how much you want to talk, no matter how much uncomfortable it is, you have to act like a dog. If you are Wonder Woman and you fall down and scrape your knee and you believe that Wonder Woman wouldn't cry in that situation, you can't cry unless you call time out and then cry and then go back. <laughs> to the game. But you have to stay in character. Lev Vygotsky, the great Russian uh, psychologist, argued that a primary thing, he said the primary thing, but, I, but I'm not sure if it's the primary, but a primary thing that children are learning in play is how to control their behavior in accordance with a socially agreed upon set of rules. And he said that's the essence of being a human being. That's what distinguishes us from the other animals. In fact, if somebody just acts according to their instincts and their whims, we might even say he's acting like an animal. He's not acting like a human being. Human beings control themselves in accordance with socially agreed upon. They may not all be, always be stated. They may be implicit rules of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And children are practicing that all the time, especially little children playing these, what's called sociodramatic play, playing, uh, playing imaginary games with one another. So there's even one psychologist uh, or neuroscientist, really, Jacques Pongsep, who's argued that uh, maybe the high incidence of ADHD is not entirely the result of the fact that we're diagnosing normal boy behavior as abnormal. Maybe part of it is that, in fact, people are becoming more impulsive because they're not playing as much and they're not acquiring the ability to inhibit their impulses that as uh, happens in play. And he's actually done some animal experiments that support that hypothesis, and he's done a little bit, he's gotten one group to do a little bit on the value of, um, of a morning recess and reducing um, ADHD-like behavior in, um, in kids who are, have that diagnosis. Fourth characteristic of play, play is imaginative. Play always play has rules, but there's always room for imagination within the bounds of the rules. And in fact, the rules and the imagination are intertwined with one another. The, the, the imaginary world has rules related to that imaginary world. So, you know, the... the um, the ima imagination is most obvious in sociodramatic play, where the kids are creating characters. They're, they're creating, they're imagining they're this kind of a character, that kind of character. They're creating the plot, and they're acting it out. That's where imagination is most obvious, and that's why that's called imaginative play or fantasy play. 
But all play has an imaginative element to it. Rough and tumble play, they call it a fight, but it's a play fight, it's a pretend fight, it's an imaginary fight. You're building a castle. No, it's not a real castle, it's a pretend castle. You call it a real castle in the context of play, but you know that this is a fantasy castle, it's a pretend castle. Informal games with explicit rules, the imaginative element is built within the rules of the game and in the game. So, you know, baseball. In the real world, you can go home by any of an infinite number of routes. In the, in the world of baseball, in this imaginary world of baseball, the only way to go home is to run from base to base around a diamond after a pitch is made. So that the, this is an imaginary world, unlike the real world, but you have to accept this imagined world and work within it and think logically within that. And that's what scientists do when they think hypothetically. That's what all of us do when we think um, about things that aren't presently in front of us. So in play, children are continuously training their imagination. And as I said before, imagination underlies all of what we call higher order human thinking. And, uh, and it's in play that children are, in imaginative play especially, that children are developing that ability. You know, think about the role of imagination in human achievements. Uh, you know, think of an architect, for example, who is, a, is designing a building. Before that building ever occurs, it's an imagined concept in her mind. And then it becomes a playhouse on paper, and maybe a playhouse actually in a model. She's imagining what would go on here. She's imagining what it would look like, and then she's creating a very much like these children building a sandcastle, but it's going to ultimately be a real house. Imagination underlies the whole process. Or think of a scientist. Uh, scientists don't just collect data. They also try to imagine ways of accounting for the data, things that they don't see that might explain why the results came this way. That's, all, that's the essence of theoretical science. That's developing hypotheses and testing them. You can't see gravity, but gravity explains a lot of phenomena. You're using imagination when you think that way. Einstein always referred to his greatest achievements in um, mathematics and theoretical physics as combinatorial play. He said it was all play. He famously claimed that he came up with the idea of relativity in part by imagining himself chasing a sunbeam and then imagining what would happen if he caught up with it. It's often said that geniuses are those people who somehow retain into adulthood the childish capacity, the childlike capacity for imagination. They never, they never suppress that, they retain it, but they then build upon that with everything that they learn. And then when you can combine that childlike ability to imagine with all that you've learned, in, in Einstein's case about mathematics and physics, then you can come up with really new and novel ideas. But all of us, you, even when, whenever we think about tomorrow, it's an act of imagination. Tomorrow has never occurred. <laughs> Where it's just an idea in our head, and we are thinking about what could happen. We're thinking hypothetically, just as those children are thinking about what could happen if there's a troll under the bridge, or there's a witch chasing me, or if I'm Superman, and... Um, and so on. So these, these are, the point I'm trying to make is when we look at children playing, they are exercising 
the most important human skills, the things that really distinguish us as human beings, and they are constantly practicing those things, and they are practicing them with an intensity that cannot be replicated in the classroom, that cannot be replicated in the classroom. Because when they're in the classroom, it's no longer play because we are telling them what to do. It's impossible to really have play in the classroom because there's so many different kids with so many different things to do that we, you know, you can have play at recess, but you can't really, you can't really say that you're teaching a large number of kids in this play. You can make the lesson more playful, but that's not the same thing as play. So um, the fifth characteristic of uh, play is that it is um, is that it involves conscious control. I'm, I'm sorry. The fifth characteristic of play is that it um, is conducted in an alert, active, but not overly stressed frame of mind. It's you can't be passive in play because play, as I said, involves attention to rules. It involves attention to means. You're always active in play. Your mind is active. You're immersed in it. That's part of the definition of play. But you're not overly stressed. Even if you're climbing that tree way up there, you're a little frightened. You are frightened. But if it got too frightening, you would come down because you can always quit. You can always quit. Nobody's making you do it. Nobody's judging you in play. You're free to fail. There's no, you're, you're in a fantasy world. It doesn't matter if it, you don't succeed. You are, the play world is a simulation world, a safe place to practice skills that you then might apply in the real world in another context. So in play, because you're, it's in a, it, it, and the very fact that it doesn't count, in play, you're not doing it to get anything. So if you don't succeed, it doesn't matter. But yet you're trying your best because you want to do the best, because you care about doing it beautifully or wonderfully or bravely or whatever it is that you're doing in play. This mental state of play, this active, alert mind but not overly stressed mind is what some researchers call flow. And there's a lot of research showing that this flow-like state of mind that originally was studied entirely in the context of play is the best state of mind for learning new things because you're not afraid to get yourself into it. You're not afraid to fail. It's the best state of mind for doing anything creative. It's the best state of mind for doing things that require courage that that you wouldn't be able to take in the real world because failure would really matter in the real world. Now, let me give an, just one example of an experiment. This happens to be done with college students that show uh, the value of a playful state of mind. There, there's a researcher named Alice Eisen who used to be at Cornell. I think she's retired now. But she uh, did many, many experiments of the following type, where she would give uh, college students a problem to solve. And it would be the kind of problem that's called an insight problem. It's the kind of problem that it just seems like there's no solution until you suddenly see the solution. And then, oh, why didn't I see that before? That seems easy now that, now that I see the solution. So the one of the classic insight problems is called the candle problem. It's a problem you're given. You're given a little candle. You're given a a book of matches, you're given a box of tacks, and there's a bulletin board on the wall. And your job is to mount the candle on the bulletin board so that it's upright and you can light it and it'll burn properly. 
And the secret to this, which most people don't see, uh, certainly don't see it right away, and many people never see it when they're actually in this experiment, is that you have to, to do, the solution is dump the tacks out of the tack box, use the tack box as a shelf, tack it to the bulletin board, mount the candle on the box, and light it. Now, when she gives this to Cornell students, Cornell students are supposed to be bright, she gives it to Cornell students, <laughs> typically 15% of them come up with the solution. So 85% are not solving the problem. She did an experiment in which um, she did the following. Half the kids, before they, half the students, before they were tested in this, they spent five minutes watching a slapstick comedy. Just five minutes watching a slapstick comedy. She claimed that was to put them in a good mood. She's interested in the effect of a good mood on problem solving. I say the slapstick comedy puts them in something, in a special kind of good mood, a playful mood. So you've seen the slapstick comedy and you think, oh, this is just all fun. We're just here having fun. We're like the Three Stooges or something and we're just fooling around here. So, the, um, so in that situation, 75% solved the problem. And in the control situation where they just saw the, a film about math or something, in that <laughs> situation... <laughs> Only, again, only 15% solve the problem. Isn't that interesting? So when you're in the situation where this is taken as serious, and think of the way a typical student here, there's a professor doing this. It's like being a student. You're being evaluated. There's pressure on you to do well. And only 15% get it right. That's the school situation. You put them in the play situation. This is just a game. This is just fun, you know, and 75% get it right. And it's not just students. She went on, she did an experiment with real doctors, and she uh, gave them a difficult case to diagnose. And there was, it was sort of a tricky case, and there was misleading information in it. But if you really attended to the information, and, you really, and if you really thought it through well, you could come up with a diagnosis, and there was a correct diagnosis. She found that the act of giving the doctors, half the doctors, she gave them some candy beforehand. <laughs> Again, she said this is putting them in a good mood. I, th I think maybe giving a doctor a million dollars would put them in a good mood. <laughs> giving them candy, I think, puts them in a playful mood, right? <laughs> this is kids. We're being kids here, right? This is candy. That they were more likely to solve that problem correctly. So next time you see your doctor and you've got something you've got to dose, give your doctor some candy, tell a joke or two, get them in a lighthearted mood, and they will more likely come up with uh, with an appropriate diagnosis to what they're doing. These are these these effects are among the large. I mean, psychology is an area where typically experiments show small, statistically significant. These are big effects that simply result from being in a playful mood versus a non-playful mood when you're solving the problem. So um, people often think of play as um, frivolous or trivial, and they are right. And here is really the, the uh, most delicious paradox of play. It is the triviality of play that makes it so powerful. It's the very fact that it's trivial. It's the very fact that it doesn't count. It's the very fact that it's not getting you anything. It's not getting you any gold stars. It's not going on your resume. It's not being evaluated. It's that very fact that it's trivial 
that makes it a place where you're free to fail, where you're free to try, where you're free to do things that you don't really know how to do that well, where you can have the courage to do these things because nobody's evaluating, evaluating you. The, the enormous educational power of play lies in its triviality. And if we try to turn play into something else, if we try to say we're playing so that we can lose weight <laughs> or we're playing so that we can um, gain this particular ability and so on, and if the player takes that attitude about it, then it's no longer play. Then you lose that power. It no longer is something that you're just engaged in for its own sake. Now the goal becomes the... the that becomes the prominent uh, thing in your mind. The education that occurs in play is purely a side effect. It's not that the child is consciously trying to educate themselves. And if we try to consciously use play to educate children in very specific ways, we are undermining play. Play is something that you do for its own sake, not something that you do for the sake of education. We need to free children for play. They need to be able to play at school, but we don't need to think about play as a form of education because when we do that, then it's no longer play. Now it's aimed at some result, and in this day and age, that means some measurable result. And then it's just a new way of teaching a curriculum. It may be a better way of teaching the curriculum, and it may be worth doing. It may be a more playful, more enjoyable kind of way of doing the curriculum, but it doesn't substitute for play. Okay, um, let me, um, I want to, um, the, other, the other point I want to make is although play is trivial, it's never easy. And the reason it's not easy is when it's easy, it becomes boring, and then it's no longer fun, and then you do something else. So think of a toddler who's been playfully walking back and forth between two chairs, learning to walk. Once that becomes easy, the toddler is no longer interested in that. Now the toddler wants to skip or climb or do some other locomotor thing that's hard or do it on a hill. Um, think of a teenager playing a video game. The teenager doesn't stupidly keep playing the same video game at the same level the teenager goes from level to level to increasingly difficult play or to increasingly difficult, always upping the ante, always on the cutting edge of his ability to solve the kinds of problems and do the kinds of things that are involved in the video game. Einstein didn't keep solving the same kind of problem, would no longer be play. If he was just, he would now, it would now be like being a bureaucrat. You're just crunching numbers, he kept moving to higher and higher or different levels that required new ways of thinking in order to keep himself playing at what he was doing. So play, play almost by definition, the child is at their cutting edge. If you look at a child and you say, I don't understand why that child keeps doing the same thing over and over and over again. But if you were able to get into the child's mind, you would realize that that child is trying to meet some challenge in doing it over and over and over again and is varying things and is doing. If you could get into the child's mind, there's a reason that the child is doing that over and over again. Play tends to be very, very repetitive, and that's part of the idea that play is focused on means, on process. You're trying to get it right, and you keep doing it over and over until you get it right. And then when you get it right, then you move on to something else or something higher, some, some, some new level of that kind of play. 
So just as a kind of summary, I've listed here under D, under Roman numeral two, the things that children learn in play. Play and physical development. I haven't even really talked about that because it's so obvious. Play is how children develop strong muscles and strong hearts and lungs and graceful movement. Play and intellectual development. I've talked about the role of play in developing the intellect, developing the capacity for higher order thought, developing creativity. Play also, there's research showing that play develops what uh, psychologists call self-directed executive processing, a very fancy word, which really means the ability to develop a plan and then follow through on that. Very important ability if you're going to start a business or if you're going to do anything anything in this world is to be able to figure out an efficient way to do it and then follow through. And there are actually tests of this ability. And it turns out that there's a study that was done a couple of years ago at the University of Colorado at Boulder uh, comparing children who had a lot of free time that were permitted much more free time than the typical child with same age children who had much more structured existence. And the ones who had much more free time for play scored significantly and fairly dramatically higher on this test of of, uh, self-directed executive processing. So if you want your child to become a CEO or you want them to earn a billion dollars in the computer industry, let them play a lot because that's where you're going to develop those kinds of abilities that allow you to do that. Play and um, social moral development. I talked about how play is how children overcome narcissism, how they develop empathy. You know, sometimes I like to say that the golden rule of play is different from the golden rule of the Bible. The golden rule of the Bible is too easy. The golden rule of the Bible says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That would never work in play. I I cannot pitch to that little kid the way I would like somebody to pitch to me if I'm the big kid. I have to pitch to that little kid the way that little kid wants me to pitch to him. That means I have to get into that kid's head. I've got to get into somebody else's head. It's easy to get into my head and know what I want and give them what I want. But the trick in getting along with other people is to get into the other person's head and know what they want. And that's what children are practicing all the time in social play. And that's the essence of morality. That's the essence of being, um, of, 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 that's also the essence of being a good partner with anybody. They don't necessarily want what you want, but you have to figure out what they want. Play and emotional development. I talked about how children are learning to deal with fear, manage fear when they're playing in these ways that require courage. Children also often get in fights in play. <laughs> you know, sometimes the rough and tumble, somebody actually gets hurt, and then they get mad, and then a fight occurs, and how do you handle that? A real anger is occurring. You've got to learn, if you're going to, there's, there's several things that could happen. You could have a real fight, and that ends the play. You could have a temper tantrum, and that ends the play. A temper tantrum might work with parents, but it never works with kids. You could have, uh, but if you want to keep the play going, and you don't want to continue to be hurt or to be insulted or whatever it is that's bothering you, you have to learn how to be assertive about it. You have to say, oh, wait a minute, that's not, that's, this is no fun for me. You've got to stop that. I'm not going to play with you if you're not going to do that. You've got to be, learn how to assert your anger, deal with it in a constructive rather than a non-constructive way, and children practice that in play. Other animals practice that in play, too. Animals do a lot of play fighting, especially male animals. 
One of the big things that males have to learn, more so than females have to learn, of most species of mammals is how to be in close proximity without trying to dominate one another and enable to cooperate with one another. And it's probably in play fighting that animals are most often practicing that. Because if you try to dominate in play fight, the play fight is over because nobody wants to be dominated. So in play fighting, the, the stronger one always self-handicaps in a way to sort of make it equal. And uh, the, the, the fun in play fighting is to get yourself into the submissive position and then somehow get out of that position and all animals play fight in that kind of way. So, um, <clears throat> so play is developing all of these, I mean you could, these are really the things that people have to develop in every culture and play is the way that people have always traditionally developed them. So then finally in Roman numeral three I see that the, we're, we're I don't want to. I want to leave some time for for questions and discussions. So I want to move along pretty quickly through Roman numeral three. But I want to say, so what can we do to restore play? We're not going to go back to the 1950s. We can't go back to the 1950s. We're not going to go back to a world where moms are home and neighborhoods. Everybody in the neighborhood knows one another because moms are home. We're not going to go back to that. Uh, nor should we. Um, we're not going to suddenly change attitudes about danger. Uh, we're not going to, in some sudden way, change attitudes about uh, the importance of getting your kid into the best college, mm -hmm. although I hope that we can change attitudes somewhat on that. Um, but what can we do within the confines of what's possible? So I've listed some thoughts here. And I've broken them down to at the individual and family level, what can we do? At the neighborhood level, what can we do? And at the community level, what can we do? And this is by no means an exhaustive set of possibilities. But at the individual and family level, I think the first thing that parents need to think about and to really think about it is what ultimately do they want for their kids? What, one way to think about it is what you would want, what would you want set at your um, funeral or on your gravestone? Would you want made it into Stanford? <laughs> or would you want was a good father or was a good neighbor, was a kind person, um, had fun in life, um, had it together, um, which is more important, that your child grow up emotionally and mentally healthy and feeling in charge of their life and feeling like their life is really their life, or that they make it into an Ivy League school? And I think every parent that seriously thinks about that recognizes that, of course, they want their child to be psychologically and socially happy and they want a, a moral child and they want all of these things. And then if they can recognize that those things aren't taught in school, those things are not the things that get you into Stanford. Those are the things that you don't, can't put on a resume necessarily. Those are the things that are learned in play. And if you want your child to develop that, you have to let your child play. So that's part of it. 
By the way, none of this precludes getting into Stanford. I know kids who've grown up playing all the time and they still get into and, and And in fact, I think in some ways they have an advantage. They've done something unique. They've some, done something different rather than the typical grade grubbing route to get in. So, um, so uh, but nevertheless, that's, that, that's not the goal of what their life was. They decided to do that, but that wasn't the goal of their life. So that's part of it. Examining your fears. Where are your fears rational? What would you allow your child to do? You know, the expert on this is Lenore Scanese, uh, author of Free Range Kids, and she works with parents and gives this kind of advice. So, you know, Think of the things, have a discussion with your child about what your child would, be, would like to be allowed to do. And, and go through this list, things that you haven't allowed your child to do, and your child says, I would really like to be allowed to do this. So it might be that it's a 10-year-old girl who says, I would like to be allowed to walk all by myself to school <laughs> or, or with my friends to school, with no adult with me. Or I would like, you know, this is something that, of course, everybody used to do, but now people are afraid to allow children to do that. So then you think about it. Am I ready to allow my child to do that? Can, it's not so much can the child do it, can I tolerate it as a parent? Can I, do I have the courage to allow my child to do that? Pick something that, you, that stretches your ability to do that, and then go a little bit farther each time. And each time you do it, you'll develop more confidence that it's okay for your child to do these things. Okay for your child to go out and play in the park with no adult there. Play with a friend and, and, and do these things. So that's part of it. Another thing one can do is to go on vacations with other families instead of just with your family. Go on, you know, find other families that you know, try to combine your vacations, go to a state park or something. The big advantage of that is then the kids can play with one another. They want to play with kids. They don't want to spend all their time with their parents. And the parents can spend time with adults. They don't want to spend all their time with kids, right? <laughs> so, you know, we need to, we, you know, we value family togetherness, but... I think we value it too much. And what we don't value enough is the need for kids to get away from their families, to get away from their parents, to be in a way where they have to solve some of their own problems where they're dealing with other kids without their parents there and ideally without other adults there solving their problems for them. So those are some things to do at the individual level. At the neighborhood level, I would recommend a book that I should have put on your um, the suggested readings there is by Mike Lanza, L-A-N-Z-A, called Playborhood. Um, he wrote it three or four years ago. Mike Lanza lives in uh, Menlo Park, California, kind of an upper middle class neighborhood, and he moved in there when he had just one son, one young son. He's now got three sons. But he moved in there, and he realized that there were other kids living there because he could see them coming out to the school bus. But he never saw them at any other time. And he treasured his own childhood of neighborhood play, and he really wanted his sons to have opportunity for neighborhood play. And so he said, what can I do about this? So he took it upon himself to turn his neighborhood into what he calls a playborhood. And he did it by, instead of the typical thing of putting your kids' uh, uh, recreational equipment in the backyard, he put it in the front yard. He put the family picnic table in the front yard. 
so the Lanzas were always out there. Nobody else was out on the street, but they were always out on the street. <laughs> they would have their dinner out there, and pretty soon people saw the Lanzas, and they'd come over, and they got to know the Lanzas. And through the Lanzas, they got to know one another, and suddenly this was becoming a neighborhood. The kids got to know one another, and the Lanzas would say, oh, by the way, you know, We've got this sandbox here. We've got this water fund. We've got this little basketball court. We've got a, actually a toy chest over here, which you can have outdoors in California, I guess. And, the, um, and they even had some, vid- some electronic stuff. And so the Lanza's front yard became the neighborhood playground. And as the kids got to know one another, and also then in the backyard, you had stuff that they couldn't put in the front yard, a trampoline, a, a big treehouse, and so on. And as the kids got more acquainted, they went in the backyard. And he said, you know, you can play there anytime. We don't have to be there. It doesn't matter if our kids are there. You can play there anytime. And so it became a neighborhood park. And um, I visited Mike Lanza uh, three or four months ago. And... Um, and, I, and Mike suggested that I follow his son, who's now, I think, 10, around. Like, how was I going to do that? He lent me a bicycle, and I, <laughs> and I got the son's permission. I didn't think it was just appropriate to follow him around, but <laughs> I got the son's permission to follow him and his friends. And after school, they skateboarded home, and they picked up some stuff, and then they skateboarded off across some busy streets, off to a lot, all by themselves. They were in the skateboard park, and they were, as far as I could tell, they were the only kids their age who were there without some adult watching them. They were playing like kids used to play. And it's because they sort of grew up playing in the neighborhood, and now it's expanding out beyond that. So Mike took it on his own self. To, to, you know, he had a, enough money to be able to do this and enough time to be able to do this. In his book, he, has, he describes five or six other communities that are very different communities, how they solve the problem. So, for example, uh, projects in the Bronx uh, uh, where one could quite well understand why parents might be reluctant to let kids out to play. A busy street, there's drug pushers, there's people with guns, and so on and so forth. Um, they, a, a group of parents got together and they said, we need, uh, to, we need to be safe for our kids to go out and play. They need free play. And they got the city to close off the street in front of the place after school, and they got a couple of grandmothers to sit out there and sort of chase the drug pushers away. And so that was, <laughs> that was how they solved the problem. And so different, different groups, it takes somebody with initiative or some group of people, but these are eminently solvable problems. It just takes people who want to solve the problem, who realize this is a priority and we need to figure out some way to do this. At the community level, this is where we really especially need to work, and this is sort of where it's hard to work because it requires convincing the larger community of the need. So, but here are some of the things that could be done. There's no reason they couldn't be done. They wouldn't be expensive. Schools as places to play. After school as a place to play. Instead of after-school structured programs, have after-school free play. And it could be age-mixed play. If you've got a if you've got an elementary school and a middle school and a high school all in the same vicinity, they could all combine. You've got age mixed play. You could make use of the, not only the school playground, but the gymnasium, art supplies, computers. Some schools have swimming pools. All of that 
is there. It's just being wasted after school. That could all be free play. And, that, and if parents were convinced that free play is valuable, this would solve a lot of their needs. This is how they can get free play in a safe place. There are some adults there observing it. This wouldn't be very expensive. You don't need very many adults. And, all, and they, all they have to do, they have to be taught not to intervene, but they have to be taught to be there kind of like lifeguards to make sure that things are safe enough. And that would be easily done, and it wouldn't be very expensive. And parents, it would solve the babysitting problem. It would solve a lot of problems at once. And, but it would take some initiative. It would take, the, it, would take, it would take a group of parents who would really work on convincing the school department that this is really, really important to the education of their children. So that's, uh, that's something that could be done. Adventure playgrounds are beginning to crop up in various parts of the United States. I don't know if you all know what adventure playgrounds are, but they used to be called dump playgrounds. These are playgrounds that really literally look like dumps, old tires, a lot of old boards, a lot of stuff for kids to do things with. We used to play in the dump a lot. There was the first so-called dump playground was developed by a playground developer in the 1930s in Denmark. And he was building all these beautiful playgrounds. And he realized the kids aren't playing there. They're playing in the dump. <laughs> so he created a playground that was like a dump. And then the kids played there. There was all kinds of things to do. There are tools to use. And um, the adventure playgrounds in Europe, there's now there are many of them, um, have a play worker there who is trained to know how to be present and to make sure things are safe without intervening and who's very good at holding back and letting the kids do dangerous things. So I've, there's a film uh, on, called The Land, which is about a playground in Wales, an adventure playground in Wales called The Land, which I recently saw. The filmmaker invited me to watch it with her. And the... Um, the kids are actually, they are, they're making fires. <laughs> and they're making fires in a setting where it almost looks like it could catch on to other things. And the play worker is watching there, and he apparently knows that this is okay, and he would stop at, presumably, if it, but he's not going to just say you can't make fires. He's letting the kids judge and control it. And the kids are, you hear the kids talking about it, and they say, no, no, we've got to damp it down because if the flames get up too high, it'll catch on to this. And he's letting the kids talk it out rather than him talking it out, him telling it. You can't let it go that high. But he's there in case something did happen, and he would know how to put out the fire uh, if one really did develop. So there are increasingly, there's a new adventure playground in New York City, and there are um, a growing, num growing amount of interest in this. So this is a place where kids can just go and play in, uh, at, at building things, at climbing, and doing kinds of dangerous things that they like to do, and yet it's relatively safe because there's a play worker there. In the UK, they discourage or even forbid parents from staying. You can bring your kid, but you can't stay. That's not so true in the United States, and I think it's because uh, parents would be reluctant to um, do that, but I think that's got to, I think over time that would change, that parents would begin to realize it's safe enough, and then we could begin to have the rules in adventure playgrounds in the United States, too, that parents can't stay. I got a call um, not long ago from a youth, uh, somebody who was a youth sports director in Tennessee who said that he had been directing these, you know, these organized sports, and he had read my book, and also part of the reason for reading the book is he had already developed the view that 
these youth sports were not good for kids. <laughs> and he had also gotten completely disgusted with the parents who would come uh, to these and would be rude and um, would be all about competition and so on. And so he changed the whole program. He called it the Sandlot Experience. And he said, you're allowed to bring your kid and you can drop your kid off. You cannot stay. <laughs> Parents cannot stay. And uh, at this, he's got equipment. It's on a university ground. So there's, and there's fields and there's equipment for all kinds of activities, for baseball, for volleyball, for horseshoes. I don't know all, but a lot of activities. Kids can do whatever they want. But they have to make their own game. They have to find enough kids to do it. <laughs> they have to create their own game. And um, the last I heard from it, it's working pretty well. So these are things that can be done in our world. And parents think it's safe because there is this adult there who is a trusted um, youth leader and um, who's, who's organizing this. So I'm going to stop here. I've, got, I've talked much longer than I intended to. But I want to I want to just conclude by saying by thanking you all very much for coming, thanking you for your own interest in solving this problem for whatever you're going to be able to do to make our world a better world for children than it currently is. Thank you very much. We've got a little bit of time to do some Q&A. So um, what we're going to do, I think, is just ask you to speak really loudly. And then Peter's going to repeat your question into the mic so everyone can hear. And it can be recorded um, by KUOW. And um, we do also have um, Camille from Lake and Park School, um, which is a K through five, pre-K through 5 school. Um, and Joel, is Joel still here? Joel's a preschool. Um, he's at Children's Hilltop Center. So if there are questions that are kind of Seattle-related, um, they're happy to answer those. But definitely try to um, take advantage of the time we have with Peter because we don't have him very often. Um, and uh, I also, we created this document um, on the green that's also some further ideas on how to advocate for and incorporate play um, perhaps in our area. So if you have questions about that, you can um, ask me afterwards. Um, but yeah, I'll hand it over to Peter. And um, I don't know, do you want to select people? I might as well. Okay, sure. that might be the easiest. Yeah. So back there. Uh, I was very interested in your uh, discussing males must learn how to be in close proximity with each other without dominating. Right. And I wondered if you had any practical examples of that working in your <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've actually have written an article on that about the value of, um, this was especially an article about the value of play in adulthood. It turns out that when you look at those species of animals that continue to play into adulthood, which is a minority of species, it's those species where it's important for the males to be able to live together and cooperate. They live in multi-male, multi-female groups. And uh, in, those, in those, uh, those species of monkeys, mostly, and apes, that for which this is true, which is a minority of species, the adults play into adulthood. And it's 
consistent with the theory that I just described, that play is serving as a way for them to practice being in vicinity without dominating one another. It's also the case I've done, as some of you might know, I've done a lot of writing about hunter-gatherer cultures. And so hunter-gatherer cultures were, the band hunter-gatherer cultures were the way we human beings always lived throughout almost all of human history until very recent times, and near mere 100,000 a mere 10,000 years ago, agriculture was developed. And it turns out that, there, that band hunter-gatherer cultures uh, have survived. Uh, not, there, there are no pure hunter-gatherer cultures today, but as recently as the sort of 1970s and 80s, anthropologists could go out and find these cultures. And what they found in every one of these cultures is they're extraordinarily playful. The adults are playful. And these are called egalitarian cultures because they have this egalitarian ethos. There are no bosses, there are no subordinates, and they have to, therefore, in order to live in this kind of way in which they're cooperating all the time and sharing all the time, they have to grow their (laughs) males in particular in such a way and behave as adults in such a way that um, as to suppress any budding tendency to be domineering to be a bully, to be, as one, as one uh, wise member of one of the cultures told the anthropologists, he said, young men, if they think too highly of themselves, can be dangerous. They may kill somebody. And so we have to raise them in a way that they don't think too highly of themselves. And they use humor and play as a large part of the way of doing that. And so if, uh, this is, so if a young man goes out and he comes back with a fat antelope that he caught, he has to act very humble about it. He has to say, oh, it's so skinny I shouldn't even have brought it back. And the only reason I got it, it was sickly. And, and even then it was the fine arrow that somebody else made for me. I mean, if he doesn't do that, if he acts a bit proud about it, then everybody else will put it down. <laughs> they will, this is called insulting the meat. They will talk about how skinny and worthless it is because it's very important to them that especially young men don't think too highly of themselves. And, it's, and according to one anthropologist, the grandmothers who are the leaders in this, they will simply taunt and, taunt and ridicule a young man who thinks he's a big guy, who <laughs> thinks that he's got... You know, and so that's you know that's one example. But I think that um, I think that children that children when they are when they are play fighting and when they, when whenever children are playing, you cannot dominate the others. And to the degree that you are playing, you are learning how to be in the vicinity of another person without dominating them. Dr. Gray, I just yeah. want to speak to the fact that there's also more recent research about how girls have a very similar experience, although it's in a more subtle kind of right. way and a more uh, right. personal, social kind of way. But I, I would say the benefits you're talking about in play are important to both boys and girls. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I just want to say really quick, we're going to take questions till about um, 8.40, so we've got about 10 minutes. Uh, all right, yes, and Red. Okay. Um, I, have, uh, I have two comments and a question, so I'm trying to do that. Um, one thing I was really struck by is talking about um, being successful 
and how you know you ask a parent what success means for their kid. And right. Pushing all this testing and um, achievement and getting into right. Ivy schools, but that you know satisfaction and happiness is more right. probably what we would want. Um, and how much how we define success in schools. Is, right. Right. And I think um, what you're talking about is really powerful in terms of um, uh, creating change in our school system to to push people towards what we are defining as being successful. Um, so that, that, that was just one comment. Um, right. The other one is that uh, kind of a deeply sad realization of how much even play is an issue of equity. That. Um, you know, if my kids went to a school that they took away all the recess, you know, my kid would be totally miserable, but he would come home and I would send him into a big backyard that's essentially, right. we've got a tree that we cut down and we left the rounds for them. We've got, right. you know, stuff for them to play with and explore. And right. we have kids, um, I, watched, I watched some kids out the, out the window of the community center at a transitional housing place. Two boys dismantling a uh, picnic table. Not because they were being destructive, but because there wasn't anything else free to explore. Right. They had this really nice new play structure, but they lived there for a few months and it was boring. They right. wanted to build stuff and make stuff. Right. So it just sort of struck me like how deeply important it is that more play right. is in our school. And the same with talking about um, uh, letting playgrounds be available for play. Right. That's also an equity Right. So it's just not, you know, it's not an option for some of those kids. So that is just. Um, yeah. Anyway. Okay, so the. So the question I have actually is if you have um, the, you know, unrestricted play and letting kids figure stuff out on their own, one of the big differences I think now from when, uh, from the 50s, is um, inclusion of kids with special needs. And what do we do to let kids with developmental delays? Or physical disabilities be part of that when um, kind of the rules are sort of different and kids are not going to have the same. Um, right. Not going to have the same rules for each other. Right. Okay. I'm, I, you've reached the limit of my capacity. To <laughs> I think I think there are three questions here. So the fir the first question was the question about assessment. How do we how do we evaluate whether a school system is working, whether kids are becoming educated? And uh, that's a great question. And my view is that um, we can't evaluate it in the short run. That anything you try to test in the short run, you're just going to teach to the test. <laughs> if we were to try to evaluate it by you know, that test of creativity that I said is so predictive, you'd teach to the test of creativity. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Whatever we test on, it, by making it a test, it becomes useless as a test because it's no, longer, it's no longer simply a test of consequence. It now becomes some... And there's no test on earth that you can't teach to. You can teach, you can teach to an IQ test. You can, you can increase IQ tremendously by teaching to an IQ test. So anything that you measure, and if you say that's the goal, and the goal of teachers is to get a higher score on that, 
teachers will find some way to shortcut it and get the higher score. That's their job. And, of course, no real learning is occurring when that occurs. So I think the only way you can evaluate one educational system versus another, there's two ways you can do it. One is, are the kids happy? If the kids are not happy, that system is a failure right off. <laughs> no matter what else, if the kids are not happy, that system is a failure. Throw it out. Try something else. The, the primary goal of any place that you set up for kids is that the kids be happy there. That's number one. Number two, if you're going to judge long-term effects. Now, happiness is one thing, but, if, but of course the parent says, all right, so my kid is happy, but then he's going to be unemployed and on the street and miserable the rest of his life because he hasn't learned anything. So you want to know what the long-term consequences are. So I've actually just recently applied for, it's interesting that you asked that question, I've recently applied for a grant in which I'm arguing that we need a new way of assessing uh, the long-term effects of schooling. And so I've proposed a study that involves a comparison of graduates of four kinds of high schools. One kind is really free democratic schools where, where children are totally developing their own curriculum. Another category is private schools that are also low tuition uh, but are similar to the similar in the demographic groups that they attract to the, to the, sub, to the, uh, to the free schools. A third category is typical public schools, and the fourth category is progressive public schools that are in the same di school district as the typical public schools. So, and what the study is going to do is look at graduates who have been out for anywhere from four to eight years, and we're going to be looking at a lot of aspects of their life, including, so we'll, we will be interested, did they go to college or not? But the measure won't be, we won't assume that it's good to go to college or not good to go to college. So more interesting than that would be, why did you go to college? What reason did you have for going to college? What do you think about college? What, what are your aspirations in life? We'll give them a version of that internal-external locus of control. To what degree do you feel you're in control of your life versus the what degree do you feel you're a victim? We'll ask questions about civic involvement. Do you vote or not vote? Are you involved in, in local community affairs or not? We'll ask questions. Uh, uh, we'll ask questions. There's a, there's a simple happiness satisfaction with life questionnaire. So we'll be looking at those kinds of things we will also be looking at, are they able to make a living? <laughs> what kind of job? But more important, you know, we won't say that it's a success if you become a lawyer and not a success if you become a cab driver. We'll say it's not a success if you become an unhappy lawyer and it's quite a success if you become a happy cab driver. So the idea is to reframe how you look at education. I, ha I have certain predictions from this. I predict that those who are growing up with more autonomy will go on in life with a greater sense of autonomy. And whatever they're doing, they will feel better about what they're doing as a result of that. So that's my answer to your first question. Your second question was about equity. And the question of, you know, society is not fair. Society is not fair in a lot of ways. My own view, we do a lot of talking in education about the, about, um, trying to compensate for poverty by, uh, through our educational system, and everything we do makes it worse. Every time we add new classes, every time we start do new tests, every time we start training people earlier, 
the gap between rich and poor, the so-called education gap, becomes greater. I think you are asking the question not so much about that as about opportunities to play, that different people in different, different societies have different opportunities. It's not absolutely clear to me which people have the best opportunity to play, the poorer people or the richer people. I think it depends a lot. There's a woman named uh, Sonoya Luther. Uh, at, she used to at least be at Columbia Teachers College. She was studying um, children in um, poverty areas of New York City and looking at the amount of depression, the amount of drug use, the amount of crime, and so on, and talking about it in terms of it being an effect of poverty. And somebody said to her, well, you know, you don't have a control group. How do you know that this is an effect of poverty? <laughs> uh, shouldn't you also look at the same, do the same measures, the same thing you're doing at kids who are not in poverty? So she said, okay, I'll go do it in Westchester County, the richest county in, um, in New York. And um, she found more depression, <laughs> more anxiety, more use of illicit drugs. <laughs> among the teenagers there than she did in the inner city. And she found it, especially when she examined it, in those families that were high-achievement families who had these high academic expectations for their kids. And the kids then would work hard in school, but then they would blow off, get drunk on weekends, and they, would, um, and they, were, and they were using drugs and so on. They were... They were suffering, in many cases, from depression and, 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 and clinically significant anxiety. So she, and, and, and though, in contrast, the families that were looser, that allowed the kids more opportunity to play, were not just driving their kids from one activity to another. Those kids were doing much better. So I'd say you can't necessarily say that it's rich or poor. It has a lot to do with what the parents' expectations are and what the parents allow to occur. Where parents are just enjoying their kids, they enjoy the family meal, they trust the kids, and the kids go out and play, those kids are psychologically healthier, whether they're rich or poor, than the parents who are controlling, than the kids of parents who are controlling their kids all the time. At least that's what came out of her research. Now, the third question you'll have to remind me of. Oh, developmental, yeah. yeah right, right. Well, I think that, uh, first of all, we, we overuse clinical, we, over, we overdiagnose disorders. So there are some disorders that are real disorders. You know, Down syndrome, real autism. <laughs> you know, these are problems that really need uh, the help from specialized people. There are other things that we call disorders that, we used to just think of as quirks, you know, that, 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 that being on the spectrum of autism, Asperger's, you know, there were always kids who were socially odd in a way. Um, I, my experience is, um, because I do some studies at the Sudbury Valley School where children are free to play and explore in their own chosen ways, and all of their education occurs in that way. 
And the experience is that kids who come with a diagnosis of Asperger's do, generally do fine, but if they're far enough out on that scale that they really have autism, they really, those kids don't play, they don't learn socially, and those kids really do need a structured setting. Kids who come with a diagnosis of ADHD do just fine there. Um, they, they soon drop the whatever psychoactive drug, they're, they're the Ritalin or whatever drug they're taking, they soon find they don't need it in that context. They have no difficulty concentrating on things that they're interested in and they become well-educated. There are um, quite a number of kids who've come to the school with a diagnosis of dyslexia, unable to read. Uh, the first study I did of the graduates of the school, there were two kids who came at age 15, unable to read, been passed along from grade to grade the diagnosis of dyslexia. Both of them learned to read within a few months of being at the school. Why? For the same reason that I was just describing, the pressure was taken off. <laughs> you know, 90%, I'm sure, of the cases that we call dyslexia, it's not really brain damage. It's really that they were probably slow readers. They got frightened about reading. They got blocked about reading. They hid behind the diagnosis. They're passed along. And uh, it's comforting to them, and it's comforting to their parents to have this diagnosis. It provides an excuse. They no longer needed that excuse when they were at Sudbury Valley because of this school because nobody cared if they could read or not. There was no pressure on them. In that situation, they learned to read. So there have been thousands of kids who have gone through that school by this point, and the, head, uh, the, the guy who's the founder of the school tells me he's never seen a case of real dyslexia. He's seen lots of cases of people who got that diagnosis. So it really depends. We have this whole industry of education specialists. There's uh, money to be made by diagnosing people. There's careers on the line by diagnosing kids. What a shame. You know, we're, we're calling people abnormal and who in the past would have been considered quirky but normal. <laughs> you know, everybody's different. So I think we've got to get over that. There are certain real disorders, and those are the cases where somebody doesn't have those social drives that are, I said are the self. They don't play. They aren't socially interested. They aren't curious because they have a real brain disorder that prevents them from that, and those kids need separate help. But that's a small group. That's not a big group. <clears throat> yes, way in the back. Yeah, Dr. Gray, thank you for coming to Seattle and sharing with us. Um, my question, I know a lot of uh, directors of retro schools and Sudbury schools have mentioned your work and value your work. Um, if you were given a blank check, what would be your ideal design for a school or a school system? Yeah, um, well, first of all, <laughs> first of all, I would not, I, I think that schools have to be I think the school change has to come from bottom up, not top down. So I would not want to be in the position of being the education czar who decides for everybody. And I say, okay, everybody's going to go to a Sudbury model type school because I believe in that. That's not going to work because it won't work if the parents don't buy into it. If there's a conflict, it won't work. I think that I, my ideal would be a situation where there's a kind of free marketplace of schools. Where, where you have the freedom to choose this kind of school or that kind of a school, I think over time what would happen, because I believe that when people are really free to make a choice and they recognize that freedom works, that the free schools would win out. Because in the history of humanity, 
whenever people have had the, a real choice between, between doing something where you are not free, as children are not free in our typical schools, children are less free in our schools than, you know, our, we talk about human rights. Our schools violate human rights all the time. The right of free speech, the right of free assembly, the right to choose your own path to happiness. What else could that mean but the right to choose your own educational path? The right to, uh, to, a, to due process if you're accused of a misdeed. None of that occurs in school. We violate human rights in school regularly. My belief is that most parents would not want that for their child if they recognized that their children could learn without that. People think that. Their they think of it, this as like bad medicine, but unlike bad medicine, which you swallow and it's over, this is bad medicine that lasts for 13 years. And you have to keep taking this bad medicine, and that's going to cure the disease of ignorance, <laughs> and then you're going to go on. If we can convince, if we had enough people who knew about this other model of education, I am convinced that people who saw that it worked would no longer send their children to coercive schools but I wouldn't force them to send their children to that kind of school. <laughs> yeah. Can you speak to research on play and trauma, both in terms of preventing trauma and also trauma? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the, the, a missing couple words there. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to uh, any research on uh, play and trauma, so either preventing trauma or... Oh, trauma, play and trauma. Right. 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 Yeah, this is not my specialty, but there are, you know, I mean, uh, there's a lot of research showing that children um, often uh, deal with trauma through play through reenacting the traumatic situation, not because anybody's making them do it or suggesting they do it, they naturally do it. There is one example of this, the kind of an observational example. This happened to be a, I think it was a kindergarten, and outside the window of the kindergarten room, a man who was working on an electrical pole fell. And as far as could be, as as uh, the children could see, he, he may have died. Nobody knows. But they saw this incident. And so this was a traumatic experience, seeing somebody possibly die, falling from. And the report was that the teacher just really systematically looked at how the kids were playing. And they played all kinds of, they played at this. They played at, at falling. They played at dying. They played at hospitals. They played at... Uh, they were like trying to bring, trying to grasp this, trying to bring it into their understanding. And I do think that children play naturally at those things that are disturbing as a way of understanding them. There's a wonderful book written by a history professor at the University of Massachusetts called Children in Play in the Holocaust. And he wrote this book based on diaries of Holocaust survivors who were children in Nazi concentration camps. And believe it or not, children played in the context of Nazi concentration camps. They did not play to escape the terrors. They played at the terrors. They played games like crematorium, 
where they would throw rocks into a pit and screech the sounds that they could hear in the distance of people dying. They played games of daring one another to touch the electrical fence. They played games of of imagining that it was a lineup and lining up the way that children had to do. This, according to the according to the author who wrote this book, that what he got, the information he got from these people was this is how they survived. This is how they could deal with it. They are, whereas the adults tried to play in ways to escape it. So if one one man said he traded his crust of bread for a chess set because by playing chess he could forget how hungry he was. He was trying to escape and play. Children don't escape by playing. They embrace the trauma in their play, and that's how they deal with it. I think we're going to have to cut it off there. I know some of you have more questions. Um, Perhaps you can come down and ask Dr. Gray as we're um, getting wrapped up. Um, I'm sure he'd be willing to answer some questions. But I want to say thank you so much for coming, and um, I hope this has been helpful for you, and that it's just the beginning of the conversation here in Seattle, and we can keep it going somehow. So thank you so much for coming. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Peter Gray spoke on August 4th at the University of Washington. Thank you again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Tune in again soon.